So how do you talk to your kids or maybe even your grandkids about loss, about grief, about war, about COVID, certainly these days, even PTSD? These are not easy topics to tackle for any parent. But fortunately, here in Canada, we have a fellow by the name of Eric Walters. He is a social worker then a teacher and now one of the most prolific children's authors, I think, anywhere, 130 books. He also, of course, has won awards, needless to say, including the um, Governor General's Award most recently. Welcome, Eric Walters. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to have you. All right. I want to start, if we can, with the COVID book, because here we go again, you know, yet another uh, variant out there. Nobody knows really what it's going to mean, but it may mean less Christmas, maybe no visit with the grandparents. Um, what, what's your advice on this? You've written about it very specifically. I think we've got to be careful in what we're doing, but we've got to be um, kind of a sense of hope of all of this. We're not at the end of this, but we're at the beginning of the end. And I think our, our governments have responded reasonably well compared to most places in the world. But we also have to look at our personal responsibility. Um, I'm uh, triple vax now. I just got my uh, my <laughs> Pfizer to go with my two AZs. But Lucky thing, because I don't know if we could do this on Zoom if you weren't vaxxed, right? <laughs> oh, we, we should probably go into the vaccination issue. And, and being a part of the hill. Um, I think we just got to be careful and 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 be kind to each other. What I found is that this pandemic has pushed everyone close to the edge. It's absorbed part of our bandwidth. It's made us stressed and stretched and strained. And right now we need to show kindness to each other. How are you seeing that manifest in the kids? Well, one of the things that's really changed dramatically for me is prior to the pandemic, I would do about 500 in-person presentations a year. I spoke to probably 100,000 kids a year. And now I'm doing it virtually but I don't have that sense of connectivity to them. I don't yeah, walk yeah. in the room and connect to the kids or see what's going on or look at the bulletin boards or the neighborhoods. Or, so it, there's a distance here. You, you don't have that ability to connect the same way. And, and this and, this is fine, but wouldn't it be nice for us to be sitting down over a cup of tea right no, now? No, no, exactly. And can they, I mean, obviously the younger generation, four or five of them, they're way more comfortable with Zoom and phones and whatnot. But what are you hearing from them about this? Are they fearful? Are they now just like the adults saying enough is enough? Like, let's get on with life. Where are their heads at? When I wrote the pandemic book, it was very deliberate. And then I thought they needed to know things. I get about uh, 200 emails a week from um, young people. And I just don't get them. I read them and I respond to them. Yeah. And I was getting all these emails and a certain level of... Uh, anxiety and fear and, and things that were unknown. And I, I wrote the book because I in part because I wanted to, to help them understand things. And so I my teacher in the book um, did experiments to explain to kids how to flatten the curve and exponential growth. And I was getting responses across North America back saying, our kids actually get it. They understand these concepts. Sometimes I wish more politicians would have read my books. <laughs> but I wanted to give them a sense of calm and hope because because the bottom line is we have to have a sense of hopefulness in all of this. We're going to get through this. This is guaranteed that yeah. the timeline is is so horrendous. If someone had said to us back in March, we're going to be still doing this 20 months later, I think it would have crushed us all. 
And do you, uh, I mean, I just uh, was visiting with my young niece last week and she's at university and in her third year. And even she said, you know, this is just not the experience I wanted it to be. She's in one building, her friend or best friends in another building. They can't see each other on campus. And they are at the point of frustration about the rules saying these rules don't make sense. I can go and sit with my friend in a bar downtown or a restaurant, but I can't sit around and have a cup of tea in our room. Or you can have 17,000 people at a Raptors or Leaf game. Right, right. But but you're limited in, in seeing people. Uh, it, it There's a confusing set of uh, rules yeah. and regulations that confuse all of us. So if it's confusing to us, how does a 10-year-old comprehend all of this? Yeah. And are they? I think they're they're confused. We're trying to be as reassuring as we can and, and give them basic information. The message I, I keep trying to get across, I think it's a recurring message in most of my books, is a sense of hope, a sense of optimism. I, I think we're going to get through this. I, I'm yeah. sure we're going to get through this. Yeah, you have to put in reassurance. Now, I, I want to back up and go to the beginning of this career shift. Uh, you and I have a lot in common, starting out as social workers and I was chancellor at Guelph, and I know you live in that uh, that town, and it's a beautiful, beautiful place. But you started, I think it was in '93. Is that when you started writing? And it was it was basically just the attempt of a teacher to try and entice grade five students to express themselves. Definitely. I, I always got interesting classes, and sometimes it'd be like twenty eight students, of which twenty four were boys. <laughs> and they were they were generally good at three things, which was gym, lunch, and recess. Yeah. And they, they weren't particularly uh, into reading or writing. So I started writing right. for them that first book. <laughs> and it's set in the school I was teaching. And there's a there's a soccer theme because I played soccer. The kids used to go behind a water tower and have fist fights. That was incorporated. And six of the characters are with permission named after kids in my class. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I was just fooling around. And at the end of them, the boys came up to me and said, you know, your book isn't as bad as most of the garbage we're forced to read, which is really a compliment from them. Why don't you try and have <laughs> it? Most problem? certainly is. <laughs> yeah. and that, that's how it started. It was just completely innocent. And I thought it was a one-off. I'd written a book. Um, but the next year, the boys and girls came in and said, so what are you writing this year? And it just became part of the flow of my classes. And they participate? Do they, you know, do you let them edit them or read them or make suggestions? I, I would be reading chapters to them. As they're reading their stuff to me, I'm reading to them. And people would say, well, that's a risk, but it, it's not. It's it's just fun to play with stories. And a lot of what I'd get would be um, feedback that I'd read off them. So I'd have this line that I thought was hilarious and they wouldn't laugh. <laughs> or they 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 make funny faces or they 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 tried to be um kind but I would read to see what they didn't understand and how they were reacting. And I'd, I'd edit things from there. And then try it again and see what they said. Right again. And for kids, they don't like editing. For me to have read a chapter to them and then come back the next day and said, okay, I've changed that chapter. I want to read it to you again. I'd say, why, why again? It was good. No, it wasn't good enough. And they'd be more willing to experiment with their own stories and try to edit things and move things forward from there. That's great. The... Um... Uh, the you've written on all these topics. I mean, 9-11, earthquakes, uh, tsunamis, wounded warriors, war. Uh, I want to go back to where you um, talked about your own personal life. The king of jam sandwiches, I yeah. think it's fair to say, is a very personal book for you. It, it's, it's very personal. 
Um, it's about growing up. I grew up in Toronto. My mother died when I was four and my father had mental health issues and we were destitute poverty. Yeah. And so it, it's talking about that particular culture and, and poverty is a culture. Yeah. And we certainly talk rightfully about wanting to have diverse voices heard. And, and that's, that's part of what our country is. Diversity is, is, is our strength. But one of the areas of diversity is poverty, and it's generally overlooked or misconstrued. And, and partly because uh, writing tends to be an elite field. People who are writers tend to come from a certain background. And so they don't appreciate the nuances of it. Actually, with that book, it, it was a book that got rejected by a publisher because they said, oh, a 12-year-old couldn't possibly be that mature. And it's like, no. To read about poverty. Yeah, to, 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 to experience that. My, they said my character was too old in how he thought about the world. And it's like, no, if you grew up in those circumstances, uh, I, I almost named the book I Was Never 12 because you grew up really fast because those are the circumstances you're in. And you obviously can see that in your classrooms, too, of the kid that is part of that culture, never mind color or never mind all these other yeah. uh, groups. You yeah. can see that. Yeah. And poverty is, is one of the defining factors. I believe that systemic racism causes certain groups to, to experience poverty more often. There's no question. Yeah. Um, people arguing whether it's systemic racism in this country, there's systemic racism in every country. That's that's a yeah. fact. But it's what poverty does to certain people and how they have to come through that. Um, comparing Canada to the U.S. is apples and oranges. I know that, but they're both fruits. Exactly. But there's this book that looked at um, working class versus middle class in the United States. And it was like, you're 10 times less likely to graduate from high school if you're from working class. And then you're 10 times less likely to get to post-secondary. And if you get to post-secondary, you're 10 times less likely to graduate from post-secondary. So it's a thousand times harder to go from working class to university educated than middle class. And that's not even poverty class. Yeah. And, and that's again, working poor. Yeah. yeah. And that apple and orange thing is we do have things in our country that help us. Um, Post-secondary education is, is um, obtainable, the cost of it in this country. It's still costly, but it's attainable. And we have student assistance programs that help people. So it, it, it's apples and oranges, but we know going from poverty to being university educated is a hard road to, to, to hope. They, they talk about the bandwidth. If you're waking up every morning, wondering if you're going to get breakfast, do yeah, you have yeah. time to think about mathematics that day? If you're coming to school with all these other issues, wondering if you're going to still be in that school at the end of the week, because the, the rent is due, how do you get through things? And, and the answer basically is you have teachers that care for you, people that are there for you. And the end of that book is a message to teachers about what they need to do and how they've got to get across these messages to kids. Somebody isn't being defiant. They might just be hungry. Yeah. They might be overwhelmed. They didn't do their homework because there was nobody to help them. We've got to be sensitive to those. And, and I yeah. was so lucky. I had those teachers. Yeah. My, my grade five teacher told me I could be a writer when I grew up, which I thought was ridiculous since I was obviously going to be in the NBA. <laughs> How did that work out for you? <laughs> um, the writing part's done okay. <laughs> She's now 96, and yeah. I've stayed in contact with her all my life. And this is a woman who was there for me. Yeah. And that's what you try and do. What I tried to do as a teacher when I was teaching was like, I wanted to be there for them. And, and it, it's amazing the, the responses I get because I'm visible. I get these emails all the time from kids. And I always start with the first. Same first line, you probably don't remember me. 
Mm-hmm. I remember everybody. Yeah. And I got one that said, you probably don't remember me. I came into your class in grade five or eight, the grade three level, I left at grade seven level. You used to call my house in the morning when my mother didn't bring me to school. First recess, I called everyone's away. I was in a challenged neighborhood. I'd say, are you sick? Do you have someone to watch you? Uh, I'm sorry I woke you up, sir. Get your son to school. Um, I knew it's, I know it snowed. I didn't know your daughter didn't have boots. Please put her in a taxi. I'll pay for it. I'll buy her boots at lunch. And this girl said, you bought me boots at Bramley city center. And I want you to know, I'm the first member of my family to graduate from high school. And I'm in my fifth year at university and I'm doing a paper called the person that changed my life. And I need you to know who it was. And, and my job is just to pass that on what was given to me. That is so, um, you're tugging at my heartstrings here. My mom was a teacher, and mm-hmm. I remember as I grew up, kids, well, they'd be adults then, would knock on the door, yep. bring their kids and say, I want you to meet the woman who changed my life, which was yep. my mother. And yep. it was that exact same story. We all have a teacher, a person in our life who who saved us from something, who reached out yes, and, yes. and touched us in a way that mattered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my job as a teacher was to try and do that. My job as a writer is to do that. Yeah. And not to be preachy about it, but to be honest and show people the genuineness of situations. Yeah, the jam sandwich. Mom used to send us with an extra sandwich and we weren't, I mean, we were working poor too, right? But she would send us with an extra one and she said, you can't lie, but you have to tell a little white lie, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that you hate peanut butter or you've had it, you know, you're stuffed and you don't want any more. Does anybody want my sandwich? And then the kids who didn't have a sandwich didn't, it wasn't charity in that sense. It was just there for the taking. And it was a really, because she was, you know, she had to make that distinction and it taught me sometimes little white lies are okay in those circumstances. One of the issues with poverty as well is you're a senator, you were a broadcaster, your career. So people naturally assume you came from a very rich family. Yeah, no. (laughs) But but what happens with poverty is, is it disguises itself. Yeah. And there's also on some level that we're not supposed to talk about it that, and and I'm not sure if it's um, feeling like we're um, imposters and we don't want anyone to know, because maybe if they know, they might try and take it away from us. But, but kids need to see the possibilities of what they can become. You can become a writer. You can become a senator. Yeah. These are the things. Whoever, whoever thought of that in Wadena, you know? But they don't have those role models. They don't, yeah. they're not as visible a role model. You have touched on all these uh, topics. I was really quite blown away. I mean, you've got some history in there. Um, talking about Alexander Graham Bell and and not just the phone, but his contributions to uh, the war effort. Um, 9-11, I mean, half the people I run into these days weren't born when that happened. Um, Why is it still important to tell that story? I think we need to know that whole thing. If you don't uh, know your history, you don't learn from it, you repeat it. Yeah. Uh, We seem to be as a species... (laughs) continually um, bouncing into things that we should know about. I I always assumed that kids were bright, that there's nothing wrong with Harry Potter and stories of magic and fantasy, but I, this generation is the most brilliant connected generation of all time. And that connectivity means we can't protect them from the world. All we can do is try and help them understand the world. 
So my books, uh, I was teaching when 9-11 happened. That was the biggest life issue. That was everything. So I needed them to understand it. I came back from school after the tsunami and it was everywhere. And my kids were aware of it. I had to write about it to try and help them understand the, 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 the nuances. Yeah. Um, the book I wrote, uh, Shattered, with, with Senator General Dallaire as my consultant. I wanted yeah. people... Actually, when I met him, I was I was so intimidated. I said, I don't know whether to call you general or senator. <laughs> he had a, he has a bunch of titles and he's still working hard on he, these issues of child soldiers. I mean, that's a big issue, yeah, which yeah. Canadian kids would never have to deal with. He actually asked me to stand up and said, you're bigger than me. I should be afraid of you. <laughs> and he gave me a hug. Yeah. But, but I want kids to know about the realities of life because... Um, they're going to have to fix a lot of the things we did wrong. <laughs> and, and so they need to be aware of those things. They also need to be aware of the greatness of this country. Um, yeah. Alexander Graham Bell, second most brilliant man that ever lived. Canadian soils where he spent the majority of his life. Um, Frederick Banting. Think about a man that saved, their estimation is 200 million lives, yeah. Canadian. Yeah. Um, Robert Bartley, great Newfoundland hero. Uh, Terry Fox. They need to know about these people. They honestly, they really do. I re when I was in the States, there was a Terry Fox run in New York uh, every year. And we went to a couple of schools to talk about this. A, they didn't know about it. Obviously, why would American kids know about that? And when they saw pictures of the statue and heard about the run and heard his story, kids love heroes. And it's, it's hard to find, or it's harder and harder to find them. It is harder to find them. And how do you assume that you can grow up to be great if you don't believe greatness comes from where yeah. you are? Yeah. And I make a point. If I'm in Winnipeg or out in BC, I talk about Terry Fox. If I'm in the West, the East Coast, I make sure I talk about um, Alexander Graham Bell. If I'm in Newfoundland, they need to know about Bartlett. The, these amazing, um, and, and it, it is what's Canadian? Yeah. Canadian is being selfless, in my opinion. Um, Banting didn't earn a cent from what he did. Neither did Terry Fox. Bartlett, risking his life for things. Um, or John McRae from your hometown there. And well, just down the road. He's he's actually, his house is on my, my mug. You can see the street where he was. I'm close oh, enough. Oh, that's great. But yeah, that the, poem still captures kids' imaginations. They still stand up today at Remembrance Day ceremonies and recite it and then feel it. Yeah. I started writing Canadian Heroes when I was um, asking my class one day, and this is grade fives, I said, you know, I'd like you to name Canada's first prime minister. And I didn't say worst, I said first. <laughs> and, and I said, write it down. I had three kids write down um, George Washington, yep. two wrote down Abraham Lincoln, and one simply put three letters, um, J.F. K. And I said, I said, what does it even stand for? And he said, I'm I'm not real sure, Mr. Walters, but he makes really good chicken. And I thought, oh my God. <laughs> oh, you mean KFC? Wow. And I had three kids who know Sir Johnny McDonald. Yeah. Three. And and we can we can go back and look historically at what people have done or not done and find faults because we know that this is not the context that they lived in. 
But we've got to look at the things that people did within the context of, of how they lived their lives. But that's a really, really important issue because I think we're all struggling with it. I mean, my anybody that listens to this knows my my views, which is you cannot erase history. It is what it is. It is our story. And do we learn from it? Let's hope so. And we've got to say all parts of that history. Yes. Good, bad, the ugly. Yeah, Can you that, do that? Are you allowed to do that? Um, we we hear people all of the time. I was just talking to uh, David Adams Richards, uh, you know, well-known writer in this country, now one of my Senate colleagues, writing a book. His editors are so sensitive now, you know, this mm -hmm. this censorship that we seem to have accepted to erase parts of our story that aren't pretty. I think we've got to bring the the not pretty parts out and let people be aware of them because that, that's essential in your growth. You, you you look at your past, you learn from your past to make make a better future. And and I Canada was recently in one of those surveys. It's always like number one or number three or number five and <laughs> anything positive. And and you'll hear people say, Oh, it's a terrible country. Da, da, da. I'm thinking, well. It's not a perfect country. I didn't think they said that in the survey. They said it was the best on these characteristics, and it actually is. And you spend a little time around the world, and you realize what a jewel we have. Yeah, Not, not perfect. There's so many changes that have to happen. It boggles my mind in a country with one-third of the world's fresh drinking water that every community doesn't have fresh drinking water. That's 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 yep. terrible. Yeah, it, it offends me that a First Nations person who's in school in Toronto is funded at one level, but in a on a reserve is funded at a lower level. How how is that possible? Yeah. So so we've got to correct a number of things, but we've got to also acknowledge the things that make this country great and the people that have made it great. And everyone's faulted. And let's look at their faults, but let's also look at the positives as well. How do you teach kids? I know this is kind of a, a, a dumb question. Values. I know there's themes in your books because I've been reading them. It's about the importance of belonging to whatever mm -hmm. that group is, whether it's family or your culture or your town or your country. Um, and, and really knowing that that's changing in such a different way that we now have cultural identifications that don't really have anything to do with where you live and who you are on a day-to-day -day basis. How are you grappling with that? Well, I think part of the, the history we've talked about is that, because I believe in a sense of belonging, we denied certain people that sense of belonging yeah. for a long time. So they're trying to get that. I, I appreciate that. But we've got to look at our advantages and our disadvantages and, and try and find our commonalities. What is it about us that makes us unique? What And, and our diversity is one of the things that makes us yeah. unique. Uh, core values. I, I know, I think there are core values around being honest and having integrity and um, treating people with dignity and respect. They're, they're Canadian values the same way that they're values of many, many cultures around the world. Yeah. The, the more complicated it gets, it's actually the simpler it gets. It's sort of the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Like, even if we could keep that going in our lives somehow, it might be a better place. I don't know a religion that doesn't have that as their core. Yeah, that's that's basically the, the core values. Let's just treat each other with respect and dignity. And and sometimes it's hard not to take it personally. Um, 
uh, we're all dancing as fast as we can and moving as quickly as we can. I, I look back at things that I would have believed 20 years ago that I don't believe. Um, it's also easy enough to be um, to look at today's world. And sometimes I, I think with 25 or 26 year olds and they, they look back 25 years and think, oh, you believe this? And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I think I did. But 25 years ago, you were sitting in a diaper. Yes. You've evolved. Things have changed. Yeah, yeah you've evolved and changed. And I, I think yeah. the, the, the secret isn't what you believe 30 years ago. What do you believe today? Yeah. And, and that's become certainly a, a political thing. And, and I there's certain behaviors or concepts that I wouldn't say that were even acceptable 25 years ago. But I want to know what you believe today. Yeah. And if you can say, look, I, I, I look back and I realize what I said or what I believed was wrong. That's what I'm looking for is that sense of growth, because no one is either static or psychic. Exactly. We're just trying the best we can to evolve. And the evolution of, of society and ideas has been so phenomenally uh, accelerated. I don't want to go back to any sort of good old days because they weren't particularly good. Exactly. They were just then and this is now. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's being kind to each other and accepting that we're, we're all moving on a path and we're we're trying to experience life and trying to do the right things. We modify, we change. You you touched on a point about changing minds and growing and thinking. And, and I think about that. I'm sitting here looking out at Parliament Hill. You know, when I was a young reporter or even an old reporter, um, if a politician changed their mind on something, you jumped on them. They did an about face. They did a 180, you know, all of that. Whereas the longer you spend, you say, Thank God somebody's changing their mind and having a new vantage point on this. We've got to somehow make that a plus, not a minus. I think so. I think so. It's different when they say this two different things in the same sentence. Yeah. So the same yeah. no, that's a problem. <laughs> yes, that, that is a problem. But when, but when it, it's a, a genuine evolution, yeah. then that's yeah. a good thing. That means that they, they've changed and they're willing to listen. Uh, one of the problems with books is what I wrote uh, 25 years ago is static. It's in that book. And, yeah, and yeah. you hope that, that it's people understand the circumstances. But you, 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 I wonder with this whole generation where everything they've done is in an, in an Instagram, a selfie post, or um, <laughs> and how they're going to look back at themselves in five years. Yeah. What was I thinking with that hair and those, you know, whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. The other theme that, that runs through all of this um, writing that you've done. And as I say, like 130 books and picture books, it's amazing that that sense of personal responsibility that we each have the power within us to make changes. Again, that's a very optimistic view of the world. Can you sell it <laughs> at this time? Yeah, I think you can't be a social worker or a teacher unless you believe those things. Maybe yeah. you can't be a senator unless you believe those things. Exactly. You believe in the pauses and the people are capable of change. Uh, I clearly acknowledge that some people were born on third base and think they've hit a triple. Life is easier for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would never say to kids life is completely fair because it isn't. Exactly. You've got to work harder from certain situations. And, and one of the, the, the basic theme of the King of Jam Sandwiches is a theme that I've lived with my whole life. I believe that if I got up earlier worked harder and longer than everybody else, I could someday become something. Yeah. It, it, it worked. It, it worked. 
And, and I know it didn't work for a lot of people, but you also have to say to kids, be honest, life's not fair. It, you're going to have to work harder. You don't have the advantages, but it's possible in this country that you can become something. And it's harder if you're poor. I think it's harder if you're in a, um, a group that's, um, that's suffers some systemic racism. I think it's harder if you're female. These are facts. It's harder if you're harder if you live in rural Canada than urban Canada. I I think it is. I think it is. But you can overcome. You can move beyond. You can become something. And this country has limited, limitless possibilities. And I think the people that come here as immigrants are saying, "Yeah, I think I've got a better future here. This is a future for my kids." Yeah. People vote with their feet. Yeah. And they're voting with their feet to come here in massive amounts of of people because they think there's a better world here. And there is. You do have to see it through others' eyes. I mean, I've had the good fortune to travel around the world and and sometimes you're not seeing other countries um, at their best. Obviously, you're going into a war zone or something like that. But I've got to say, going into New York after 9-11, I saw a spirit and a connectedness and the way that New Yorkers responded to that was not to be cowed, but to say that will never happen again. And we're gonna rebuild this building and we're gonna stand up and that to capture that spirit is really important in terms of how you have to take on the world as a person. Yeah, and and I thought the pandemic was gonna bring us together and it did for a while. Yeah. And now it's moved the opposite way. Yep. And, and sometimes, and I think if you look back at 9-11, which united that country and the world, then yeah. the fragmentation that came after that yeah. is probably what's led to the left and right split in the United States at this point. Most, so of us, dramatic. Yeah. most of us are in the middle. We're actually in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Our DNA isn't much different than a chimpanzee. So how can it be different than each other? Yeah. And, and the silent, vast majority of people are just decent, honest, hardworking people who want to do the right for everybody. And there, there's extremes of both sides, which I find equally frustrating, quite frankly. Yeah, exactly. Although I must admit the extreme right. <laughs> Troubles you more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it does. And I hate when people yeah. throw around words like, God, uh, you know what fascism is? It isn't what's going on in our country. Correct. It would be if you're an unelected official who nobody wanted to vote for, who thinks they can tell the rest of the country what to do. That would be fascism in my mind. Yeah. So I think we've got to be careful with our words, be careful of what we do and realize that most people are really wanting the right thing. This is this is people are decent in this country. They're basically decent human beings. You've just you've you've hit on another key point because we do have to be careful with our words, Um, you know. They are way more powerful than we know. How do you convey that idea to the kids? Because God knows we need more adults to understand that as well. You've certainly got to be careful with your choice of language and what what words mean. Um, We're evolving that way as well. And and it's amazing words that I would use um, before that I would never use again. I I talk to people about that. Can you you give me an example? We had a webinar that was featured on Halloween, and we were going to, um, at one point, my partner wanted to call it uh, spooky stories. And I said, sorry, that word is inappropriate at this point. And here's the reasons why that word is not appropriate. And and what we do is, there's a difference between um, taking your car and running somebody over deliberately and doing it um, 
by by accident. By accident, yeah. You, you still have hurt the person. You still knocked them down. But most of what we do wrong, I think, is um, not. It's we're oblivious as opposed to malicious, and we've got to help people to be aware, more aware of what terms mean and what sensitivities are and what people want, and and that takes some that takes an education to let people know this is this is troubling to me. Why this is troubling to me, and then we can make our adaptation from there. And most people are going to try and do the right thing. We don't want to offend people. Well, and you, as you say, it's it's inadvertent. Like I mean, spooky stories. There's a perfect one. I mean, that phrase has been used for hundreds yep. of years, right? We went with and, scary stories because that's yeah. And of sometimes I was, just, I was just reading that you're not supposed to use the word brainstorming because it's insensitive to neurologically diverse people. <laughs> no, no. Now I, we're I, getting crazy. Well, I, I'm I'm not sure where the line is on certain things. Yeah. And you want to be sensitive, but. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll give you a story. I, I was made an I was made an elder um, by by the Kumba tribe in Africa. I, I, I worked there. I helped set up an orphanage. I, I helped um, run it. Although I'm only one vote, it's run in Kenya by Kenyans. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm talking to a woman and university professor, and she said, "Well, you shouldn't be using the word tribe." I said, "Well, that's what they use." She said, "No, no, it's neurological linguistic group." I said, interesting. I said, I've never heard anyone um, refer to themselves as a linguistic group in Africa. And she said, well, that's colonialism. And, and I said, so how many times have you been in Africa? Well, never. Right. Said, so just so I understand, you believe me using the word tribe that they use is colonialism, but you, somebody who's never been in Africa, who's a white epidemic woman is saying that they're calling themselves the wrong name. Yes, and yes. that certainly sounds like colonialism to me. <laughs> she made a huffing sound and walked away from me. Yeah. Like, but I think that's where we have to, um, you know, rather than pendulum swinging over here where you can't call a woman, a woman or a man, a man, um, you know, I'm supposed to be a, I don't know, a creature that potentially could give birth as opposed to, you know, a mother <laughs> kind of thing. Don't we have to have that conversation? I mean, you're trying to do it through your books, but you and I and with our neighbors and with our families have to start to say, look, let's not get crazy. We call ourselves a family and that means something. And yeah. here's why. We, we want to be sensitive. We want to be aware. We want to have the discussions in a, in a, neutral sort of setting, realizing we're, we're trying to be sensitive to people. We're trying to, to, to do the best we can. Sometimes we're going to use the wrong terms. Yeah. And I've said to people, I, sometimes I have trouble coming out with the words them and they, because grammatically it, it's hard for me. Yeah. But if someone wants to be called a them, I'll call them a them, but I hope they'll, they'll accept my sincere apology if I don't sometimes, because it's, yeah, it's 60 years of me having a grammatic flow <laughs> of words. And I don't want to, God knows, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to cause people grief. So I try and be as sensitive as I can. But that sensitivity means sometimes you got to be sensitive that I'm going to say something that I don't mean offense by. It's not that I'm a bad person. It's just I'm trying to learn. We're all trying to evolve. We had this debate in the Senate endlessly about changing the words of the national anthem, you know, in all of us command. And I'm the daughter of an English teacher. It just 
you know, kind of rankled, you know? And I don't want to offend people. I I really, that's not, (laughs) I'm so Canadian. I don't want to offend anybody. (laughs) Just say you're sorry at the beginning of every sentence. Or they say you can tell a Canadian if you bump into them and they apologize to you. (laughs) Absolutely. Which which we do, by the way. I've actually, having lived in the States and lived here, you really do see it as a point of contrast. Funny from place to place. I'm always joking that Saskatchewan is the friendliest province in this country. Yeah. Unless you take their parking spot. (laughs) <laughs> and they just go ballistic. When I'm at Saskatchewan school, I park down the street so yeah. I don't offend anybody. <laughs> well, it's it's damn cold. You know, you don't want to walk too far to the parking spots. Well, you've, taken their you've taken their block heater. So exactly. you never take their block heater. <laughs> and there are people who believe that because we plug in our cars, we have electric cars. We don't. We're just... <laughs> <laughs> just keeping the engine warm. I can't let you go without the story of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, from which came a book. Tell us the story. Uh, on a clear day from uh, the residence where our children lived, you can see Mount Kilimanjaro 64 kilometers away. So it's always been um, something that's been in my head. Um, the story came from a, a discussion about a grandfather dying, and um, from there it evolved to seven grandsons having a mission to fulfill for him, last request that he made. And so I involved six other writers. And for my character, he has to take his grandfather's ashes to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro to sprinkle them. And so I decided I needed to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. My son and I and one of his roommates, we we climbed the mountain. I, I'm I'm a method writer. So for um this is a bit extreme though in terms Yeah. Well what for just deserts I walked 250 kilometers across the Sahara desert. For walking home, I took four young Canadians, four of our orphans, and two special forces police, and we walked across Kenya, halfway across Kenya. Mm-hmm. I, I love experiencing things um, beyond Googling them. Yes. And, and you just get a real sense. Climbing the mountain that last day was the, I know what it's like to be 95 years of age. Um, you actually didn't think you were going to make it there for some Yeah, there was a point. Hour. Yeah. Actually, uh, that just the that day before, I, I was saying to my son, "I'm going to keep walking." And when lunch happened, he said, "No, you're going to sit down and eat." And yeah. I'm sitting down, and I said, "I'm not hungry." He said, ten bites." I said, well, "I'm the father." He said, "I don't care." Ten bites. Yeah. So I took ten bites, and he looked at me and said, oh, "I lied to you. Finish that before you get up." <laughs> and I went to get up, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and I realized that I didn't have the power to actually get up at that point. Yeah, it, which is why you needed to eat. <laughs> I needed to eat, and he was right. And then that last climb, sort of the, your guide bringing you step by step, step by step. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a phenomenal journey. Um, it, it made it special because my son was with me, just like when I walked across oh, Canada, yeah. my daughters was with me. No, you, uh, you really bring it to the page and there must be thousands and thousands of children and thousands of parents who are very grateful for you helping them have the discussions that we all have to have. It's Thank just you. really wonderful to meet you and and have this excuse to read all this stuff. It's just, uh, I, I really, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for, for hosting me today. I really enjoyed yeah. it. I enjoyed our conversation. It would have been nicer over a cup of tea across the Yeah, We'll do that time. another time. When we can, we really will, because I have a thousand more questions, but you know, there's another day and we'll do it. And, and, your life lesson is the one that I shared too, which is just do your homework 
And when you do your homework, you really, you, you know how much you don't know and how important it is to keep learning. So thanks for teaching us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Eric Walter is just the most prolific children's author. And just go to any store and see what you can find because it'll change your relationship with any of the kids in your life really well. Merry Christmas. All the best. Bye. Bye. <laughs>